This is Father McConville, and I'm doing this little podcast as a uh, PowerPoint presentation talking about the call to holiness, a special little uh, set of talks I'd like to give on the spiritual life. But I want to begin from a slightly different starting point than perhaps most people would consider when talking about spirituality or the call to holiness. Uh, what I want to start with is just talking about us, about human beings, the subject of the call to holiness. What is it that makes humanity unique in creation? And uh, where are the, uh, the difficulties, the challenges being human and seeking to live uh, the life of holiness? Obviously, if holiness was something that could be obtained uh, instantly or by reading a book and that's all the more that needed to happen, no practice, uh, just got dumped in your lap, then why even bother uh, with this exercise? So clearly we've got uh, some work to do. It's not something that comes easily or even uh, recognizably in many people's lives. So where do we start? If we're going to talk about the call to holiness, if we're gonna talk about spiritual uh, things, especially if we wanna talk about prayer and all the rest of it, where to begin? Well, I chose to begin with the Christian moral life, that the way we are called to act, how we are to live, the call to holiness is not just simply uh, sitting around and staring at uh, uh, holy cards or reading scripture all day. It's about living an active life, a life that is engaged in fulfilling those commandments of loving God and loving our neighbors. So it's a good place to start is to say what uh, is it about the human person that uh, A, uh, is capable of living this life despite the evidence that uh, we know we can also ignore it? Let's start with a uh, great place to start. What is Christian morality all about? What is it when we talk about living the life in Christ? Which is really what Christian morality is about. There's a definition that I came across by a Dominican author named Cervez Pinkers. Uh, you can see the book, The Sources of Christian Ethics. But here he gives you a rather lengthy definition, which I'll break down. The branch of theology that studies human acts so as to direct them to a loving vision of God seen as our true, complete happiness and our final end. Right? And this vision is attained by means of grace, the virtues and the gifts in the light of revelation and reason. So let's break this down. First off, it is, we said Christian morality is a branch of theology. So there's a lot of different areas that. So let's, uh, let's back up and talk about us as human beings, the operations of the human soul. What is it that we as human beings uh, do? What are these human actions? And we recognize that as human beings, we, uh, we're very complex characters. We've uh, got a body, we've got soul. Uh, we look a lot like other living things or behave like a lot of other living things in the world, but we also act differently than other living things in the world. So let's kind of figure out what this is all about. So what I started with first are what we call the vegetative operations, that is all living things from the lowliest amoeba uh, all the way up 
to us as human beings. Let's put ourselves at the top, why not? Um, all things that live do three basic things. They replenish the, uh, their nutrients, the stuff that makes them up, so nourishment. Growth, they get bigger. Um, of course, I suppose single-celled animals just uh, don't do that so much. They can only get so big. But certainly, uh, if we look at complex organisms, uh, plants and, and uh, animals, uh, they start out as very small little things, a seed or a, a little uh, like a, a kitten, and they grow. We grow. So there's that sense of, of replacing what uh, what nutrition, uh, what, what nutrients are lost, uh, we grow, and of course reproduction, that there's uh, uh, the species continues uh, beyond ourselves. That's common to all living things. So we recognize the vegetative functions of the soul are uh, evident or they're present in all life. And because they are present in all life, they're very strong uh, drives within living things. Uh, then uh, the higher the functioning, the, the being, the more uh, energy that can get put into those, uh, those operations. But that's, again, pretty basic, uh, what all basic life sh uh, shares in common. But now as animals, we move up the, uh, the, uh, up the scale a little bit. We have what we call the sensitive operations, the sensitive part of the soul. And here we share uh, many of these features uh, with uh, the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, first one, locomotion, movement, because we have external senses. That is, we have uh, noses to smell with and eyes to see and ears to hear and mouths to taste and skin to touch with uh, all over, that all of these external senses put us in contact with the world around us. And so unlike a plant that just kind of sits there where it was planted, uh, and if it's got good ground that it's planted in, it's going to get plenty of nutrition. It's going to live just fine. Um, unlike a plant that is totally up to uh, the mercy of whatever its environment is like, animals have locomotion. And because of their external senses can use that locomotion, movement, and go somewhere. If I'm sitting in the middle of a desert and there's no water and I'm thirsty, I'll go look for water, go find an oasis or a lake or something. But I'll get up and move and use my senses, looking for something wet, something cool, whatever. Uh, but that's just it. Because I have my external senses and I can move around, I now am able to exercise a little more uh, activity, more than a plant for sure. And we also talk about these things called appetites, that is, these desires within us, this, these hungers, longings that we have. And, and normally they're discussed of in two types, the concupiscible, that symbol desire uh, for what is good, a good thing is by its definition desirable, and the irascible appetite, that is, it's still an appetite, it's still a longing for something, but it's a longing for something that might require a little bit of effort to go after. So it's uh, the uh, going after a difficult good. The concupiscible appetite, you know, whatever comes to it, uh, and it's, it's readily available, we're, we're there on the spot. The irascible appetite says this thing's worth fighting for. This thing is worth working a little harder to attain.
and then the passions. Uh, the passions, sometimes we uh, people refer to them as emotions. Uh, these are uh, kind of broken down into the basic four categories. You got joy, sorrow, anger, and fear. Pretty, uh, pretty simple things, those. Um, I say glad, mad, sad, and scared. Uh, but uh, these are uh, how we uh, react. We react to this world around us. And usually it's in, with response, again, to good, uh, things that are good, or uh, the lack of something that's good. For example, when we experience joy, it's because we've, we've attained a good thing. The good thing is with us. And we're happy, we're joyful. Sorrow is the loss of a good thing. So we've had it, it went away. That candy bar got eaten up or a little more significant. Somebody we love dies or moves away. We experience sorrow. Um, anger is when we are uh, saddled with uh, either, a, a, uh, we're saddled with usually with evil. There's something we don't want, something that's not desirable and we can't get away from it. And there it is, right in front of us, we're stuck with it. So we, we experience anger. And fear is kind of an anticipation. We're not saddled with evil or we're not saddled with um, having lost some good. So uh, we're not experiencing sorrow or anger. It's anticipated though, we're, we're fearful because huh? it's coming. Uh, at least we, or we think it is or, or it actually is. So. Those are the, the things that are uh, experienced by all uh, sentient, if you will, sensing life. And we share that with the animals. But now we get down to what makes us us, what makes a human being unique in the uh, created world is why we have a vegetative uh, part of our soul that's nourishing itself and growing and, and reproducing, uh, that there's also the sensitive soul. Uh, we, we move around, we, we can sense things, we have desires within us, we have emotions that we feel. Now we've got the rational part of us, the intellect, and that of course, we and I labeled that in the what we call the speculative and the practical intellect that just simply talks about whether we think about stuff in the abstract or whether we think of things in the concrete. Speculative, we can talk about uh, black holes, what are they, what are they all about? Um, or doing uh, 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 advanced mathematics. Practical is uh, how do I change my tire as I got a flat on the side of the road? I got to use my mind to sort that out. Um, we have external senses like smelling and taste. We have internal senses as well. Memory and imagination are probably the two uh, most uh, readily uh, recognizable ones that we have. We also have these other two called common sense and the cogitative power. Don't want to spend a lot of time uh, with them, but uh, other than to acknowledge their existence. And then we've got this other piece called the will. That is this ability to, uh, to uh, want, to desire, to motivate our, uh, ourselves. So the intellect can look at something understand it, experience its goodness or its evil, and say, if it's good, I want it, and so the will wants to possess it. So we engage our locomotion, for example, if it's something we need to, you know, if I wanna go grab that candy bar on the counter, we stick with one example. Uh, 
because I recognize its goodness as my external senses say, hey, there's a candy bar there. My intellect using the internal uh, sense of memory says, yeah, I've had one of those before. They're pretty tasty. So I'm gonna move and go get it. So my will says, I'll de I desire that. Let's do something about it. And, uh, or it could be, uh, I know I'm not a big fan of kale. So I suppose if I saw a big steaming plate of cooked kale, I'd probably wanna move away from it. Um, you get the idea. But these, if we understand this about um, how it is that our, our soul, our, uh, our inner life operates, these are helpful things to understand as we begin to look at the spiritual life because we can see how it is that God uses all of this to help us on our journey and growing in a closer relationship with Now, let's talk then about how this all got started. And this will kind of help give us a context for how uh, humanity got into the state that it's in currently. And I take us all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, where we get a good insight into this creation. What is this human being uh, that God has, has made? Well, we hear in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, first God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he does. He creates them male and female. And he says, but let us make man in our image. We understand that to mean like God. Well, first of all, we don't look like God because God is, is spirit. So there's not, you know, not uh, a physical resemblance, but when we talk about image, but in our image after our likeness, we understand that to be what we just talked about, having an intellect and having a will. That is the intellect, we can see the order in creation. God has a plan. And we talk about God's will. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. So uh, when, so that's the first thing. When he creates humanity, he gives us, he imbues the human animal with this power that resembles his own. Make man in our image. Then he gives a command to the man. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So here we see again a command that's given by God, uh, that first of the, of the acts of righteousness is to fill the earth and subdue it. And that idea that um, we, uh, we are co-creators with God. Huh? We, in, in original creation, the idea is that we're uh, working alongside of him. Chapter two, we get a little different or a more personal look at what this working with God looks like. So, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So here we, this, this breathing in of the, uh, the breath of God, here it is. This is, um, uh, this, this is the, the divine spark, if you will. We talk about the soul, uh, the ghost, the Holy Ghost, the spirit, all of those things. Uh, that's the this sense is that it's it's that it's breathed from the very depth of God into us, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So here He um, He sets up 
uh, man in, in business sets him up uh, to, uh, to live this life. But notice now there's a little further thing though. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we have man who's created in the image of God, has a mind, a will, and so a will and an intellect to know and to love. And uh, in the beginning, it sounds like um, things were pretty good. He's got a garden, you know, and he's got food to take care of himself, all the rest of it. And we read a little further that God even creates a helpmate for the man in the person of Eve. So you got Adam and Eve. And, um, but then there's this tree, there are actually a pair of trees, tree of life and the tree, the knowledge of good and evil that gets planted. So that, well, we read a little further that God says, first off, puts man in the garden to till it and to keep it. So there again, he puts man in there to work alongside. Huh? And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Oh my goodness, what's going on here? Well, we recognize here, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, is the idea of freedom. That freedom uh, is often thought of as the um, being able to just kind of choose whatever I want to choose. But here we recognize that God is giving man a choice. You can, you got all these trees, you got all this uh, food here in the garden, it's all for you. Just asking one thing, one little thing, just leave this one tree alone. So now man is given uh, a choice. He's given the possibility of, uh, of rejecting, of disobeying God. So that's, as we shall see, this is really what freedom is about. Um, it's if uh, there wasn't a choice, can we really be free and is kind of the basic question. So what happens? Well, we enter chapter three and now we get into trouble. The serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord, the Lord, did, the Lord God had made, pardon the typo. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you shall die. So you've got the serpent who uh, seems like he's asking a, an innocent question. Well, did God say you're not supposed to eat? Well, of course, of course he didn't say you're not. He said you could eat from any of the trees, just this one don't touch. And so you can see the serpent is kind of kind of calling Eve out here, huh? And um, by putting this in front of her, uh, this tree. Well, we read on a little further. Then it says, "But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God know, uh, knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Yeah. You'll know good and evil because you will have just committed the first act of evil. <laughs> this is the deal, is that God sets the, sets the situation up, gives man the freedom to choose, to choose to obey or to disobey. And by that first act of disobedience, what we call original sin, lo and behold, we now know the difference. 
we now have this other course. We're no longer walking with God in the garden. We're now walking our own direction, deciding for ourselves what is for our own good, as if we can really do that. And so it is that, yes, we do obtain the knowledge of good and evil, sadly, because we chose to disobey. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took and ate and gave some to her husband. And he ate, and the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So apparently now, now there's, um, there's a sudden self-realization and a sort of a, a self, almost an embarrassment, a shame that uh, comes along with this knowledge this acknowledgement or this recognition, suddenly I am not connected with God anymore. Suddenly all of this stuff that was just taken for granted becomes painfully aware and painfully aware of this distinction. Um, so, and we see this uh, displayed especially because then we hear that, uh, or the sound of God is heard walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called the man, and boy, these are sad words. Where are you? He said to him. And uh, Adam said to God, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So again, here's God having to look for man. And this becomes the story of redemption is man and God on this quest for each other. That is, that is man trying to find understanding, meaning, searching for that which is going to ultimately sustain him. True good, again, what we talked about in our definition, our complete, final happiness and eternal end. And so uh, it begins because that union that existed at the beginning was broken because man decided to disobey God. And so God is forced to ask Adam, where are you? So what happens then? Well, we see how everything falls apart. Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Well, of course, the answer is yes, I did. And what does the man do? He immediately shifts the blame. The woman whom, whom you gave to me, so it's your fault, God. It's not my fault. I would have been just fine if she hadn't come into this picture. So, you know, it's, so God, you, you owe, this is on you too. So don't go blaming me that, uh, you know, that I ate of the tree because, you know, I had it going pretty good here. But then you, nope, you had to, you had to give me a helpmate. See how already the effects of sin are working. Blame everybody else. The woman who gave gave it to me, and I ate it. Yeah, and I ate it. Yeah, like she shoved it down my throat, right? There was no, absolutely no uh, consent on his part. We see how sin uh, really begins to distort that divine image, that image of intellect, that, that ability to think rationally is being turned. Already we see it in the effects of this original act of disobedience. And then God turns to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? And what does she do? She doesn't take any ownership of her own part in this. She blames the serpent. The serpent beguiled me and I ate it. And then, of course, God goes through and begins cursing everybody. And basically the curse is not like he just decided that he would um, vent his wrath. 
He's just basically saying, look, this is what you get. This is the consequence for this act of disobedience. Because you have broken your relationship with me, certain things are going to come as a result of that. And that's the sad reality. This is why the spiritual life becomes important. Because this original relationship that existed between humanity, Adam and Eve, man and woman, and God, because of humanity, man's disobedience, God said, look, I've given you a whole garden. It's all yours. Just I'm asking you one thing. Don't eat from this one tree. And boom, he disobeys and off we go. So we see this is uh, where the spiritual life begins. It's this God saying, where are you? It's our asking the exact same question. God, where are you? I'm realizing that I'm alone now. This world has become very inhospitable to me. Uh, as God says, you know, the earth shall yield thistles and thorns and you shall eat your bread by the sweat of your brow. Um, yeah, life is not going to be pleasant now. And as long as you keep trying to do this yourself, you're going to keep finding how unpleasant it is. So here it is, the, the very nub of what the spiritual life is about. God created us with all of these incredible abilities, uh, these gifts that make us uniquely human. And insofar as we use them as he gave them to us, the, the purpose he gave them for us, we're doing fine, but when we decide that we're God and we're going to do it our way, that's where we get trouble. So let's talk about that. Human sin, human sin, human freedom and original sin. There we go. Well, when we talk about uh, original sin and uh, what has it done to us and to our freedom, um, again, freedom, really, we, we have to think about freedom in a very different way. Not in terms of just, uh, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. But freedom meaning not to be inhibited, not to be encumbered, uh, not to be held back. I'm not free if somebody ties me up. And sin ties us up. Sin prevents us from living and using those gifts of intellect and will those unique operations of the rational soul uh, as they were intended to be. And that is seen in what we call these fourfold wounds that original sin created. The first is, is um, sometimes called the wound of malice. That is a weakness of the will. That is when we see uh, what is good and we can recognize it, we ought to respond uh, generously and wholeheartedly, we go for it. But uh, here actually with malice, our will is turned aside that we have not only this weakness with regard to our um, uh, initiative to do good, but we also start um, uh, setting our sights low. Huh? We start uh, looking for our fulfillment in things that are less than the ultimate good. And we, we uh, I sometimes say, I remember I had a niece who was just fascinated with the wrapping paper on Christmas. She'd get a gift and she'd open up the gift, you know, she'd take the wrapping paper off and then she'd just play with the wrapping paper. She wouldn't pay any attention to what the wrapping paper was wrapped around. 
And uh, that's kind of what happens with the wound of malice is uh, our, our, our desire isn't for the, the gift of God's life and love. Uh, we just uh, get sidetracked. Second wound, the wound of ignorance, the difficulty in acquiring truth. This is a, the wound the wound to the intellect. So we got a wound to the will, we've got a wound to the intellect now, is that we just have a hard time acquiring truth, that is seeing things for what they are. Uh, our, our lower powers, uh, our senses, our baser desires, uh, tend to want to take over what's satisfying to our external senses, uh, we start to give greater importance to, for example, uh, whatever that might be. Or maybe it's not even what our external senses. It could be something else like fame, reputation, uh, needing to be needed, stuff like that uh, can become. So we don't see things, we don't understand things for, the, for the, their true nature, their true self. The wound of weakness, which is cowardice and the irascible appetite. So sometimes the good is difficult. Sometimes, actually most of the time, it can be very difficult uh, to do what is truly good for ourselves. Um, and so as a result, we just we just chicken out. And so there's a wound, that wound of cowardice. And then we talk about the wound of concupiscence. Uh, where, again, rather than looking to our ultimate end, we're just looking at what's going to make me happy here in the moment, uh, sensual desire. So these are, this is what original sin has set up for us, is that we've got this wound, this, this break um, in our uh, desires, that uh, we're, by being disobedient to God, there's something that is cut to the very of our nature. So I like to set this up, and this is something that I've come across in recent years, is, is this distinction, and again, I, I mentioned Surveys Pink Airs, um, the fellow whose definition we've been working on with Christian morality, this notion of the freedom of indifference versus the freedom for excellence. Now, freedom of indifference doesn't just mean, you know, whatever, but it's just basically saying, um, as long as the action is my own, that is, I'm not coerced, nobody's stopping me, nobody's forcing me to choose one thing over another. I can, it's totally coming out of me. That's, that's the, the idea of the indifference, is it doesn't matter what the thing is, that's the indifference. Uh, as long as it's coming out of me, um, I'm making the choice, uh, no coercion, uh, nothing. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about freedom. What we're talking about is what he calls the freedom for excellence, that it's taken as our own. Yes, it's truly something I freely decide to do, but it's directed towards my true happiness. Um, there's a, a wonderful moment in the uh, Divine Comedy uh, where Dante is, is talking uh, in paradise with the beloved, with the blessed, and uh, the question is about... Um, kind of fulfilling your nature. He says, you know, look, water water runs downhill. That's what it does. A mountain stream flows from the top of the mountain down to the ocean. And if you put some block in the way, like a, a dam, you know, you, you dam up the river, um, then you're preventing the water from doing what it's meant to do. It's meant to flow from the top of the mountain down to the ocean. Well, the same thing with the human soul, that we were built to reach upward to aspire towards God. And so anything that's going to inhibit us, anything that's gonna act like a dam 
to us spiritually that's going to hold us back. This is what is uh, going to take away our freedom. So notice that it's not a, a freedom of choosing, although it includes that, but it's the um, it's the uh, being uninhibited, that nothing, uh, especially things like ignorance, things like weakness of will, things like uh, cowardice, which actually are dams, they're preventing me from my true happiness. These are the things that are preventing me from living truly as a human being. If we see things in that light, it's a very different way that we proceed then and that we look at our spiritual life as well. And we recognize that what we want is when we, and what we're looking for in our relationship with God is how, Lord, can I live the life you created me to have? So it's not like just, you know, saints are, are just these real lucky people that won life's lottery in the spiritual life. We're all called to holiness and we just have to figure out how to connect ourselves uh, to God. Basically, what can we do on our side to be connected with him? That's really where the spiritual life is plays such an important part is that we're saying, I want to live my true humanity in a right relationship with God. So, as we can see from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1733, the more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. Because, why? We're Because we're less and less inhibited by these things that take us away from God. We're not becoming victim of our sensuality. We're not falling prey to cowardice or um, ignorance or uh, that weakness of will. That's why we're becoming freer. There's no true freedom except in the service of what is good and just. That's true because anything else, if we're not serving what is good and just, anything else is either a reflection uh, or it's just not good. Um, it's, it's serving some other, uh, some other end. And we're not free because we're not we're we're inhibited now. We're not being the way we were made to be. We're made to for goodness. That's the whole point. We're created for goodness. Goodness is by a definition that thing we desire. The choice to disobey and to do evil is an abuse of freedom. Yeah, it's an abuse of our ability to choose, and it leads what we call to the slavery of sin. Yeah, it's a slavery in the sense that we are not living like we're intended to be. So we are slaves in that sense. We're inhibited. We're held back. We're living our own little puny lives. So how do we get that help? Well, the help comes in under two main ways, and this is where I'll, I'll end this discussion just very briefly. The first is grace. And what is grace? The easiest definition is, is God's love. So we recognize the need for grace. Original sin, as we saw, interferes with our accurate estimation of good and evil, what is truly for our good, what we only think it is. So God's going to give us his help, and his help, like I say, is grace, which is his love. Sanctifying grace, it's his freely given gift to make us participate, again, to have a, a chance to be reconnected in that divine image that we can participate in. We talk about divinizing us making us more godlike, so we're able to act uh, by his love. So that's sanctifying grace. We get that at baptism, and we can lose it, of course, when we choose uh, gravely to uh, sin against him. 
So, but we don't have just only sanctifying grace, that God helps us every moment we recognize what's called actual grace. There's a gift, uh, the gifts that are given in specific circumstances, helping us to choose good and to avoid evil. So we got grace going for us. That's what God is pouring into us to assist us. We've got virtue, which again, God still assists us with, but it's we recognize that a virtue as we, it's a long definition, but it's a habitual or stable perfection of the intellect and will that govern our actions. In other words, it's a good habit. So a good habit comes through practice. A good habit comes through uh, regular repetition. And in this case, it comes to us, um, especially it's assisted by God's grace so that we can keep acting and hold ourselves that habitual and stable way of existing. It's strengthened by repetition of morally good acts and purified and elevated by divine grace. So we can see virtues, how the virtues assist the uh, this work of grace in us. We we get in the habit of saying yes to God and staying, saying yes to ourselves. So our conclusions. That morality evaluates human actions as they relate to our ultimate goal, which is union with God. All right, so we want to look, we're looking at our actions and we realize that these, uh, that the decisions aren't always easy to make. Why? Because, well, we've got reason and divine revelation to, to assist us, but the main reason is that uh, freedom doesn't mean doing whatever we want, but loving and choosing what is truly good in that original sin is what messes this whole thing up. So what I've hoped to do in this little talk was just simply set the stage for our discussion about the spiritual life. Why do we need a spiritual life? Because we recognize that God created us to be in a relationship with him. Because of original sin, that relationship has been hurt. And on our own efforts, we cannot reestablish that relationship. So God gives us all sorts of help, gives us his grace, helps us to cultivate virtues, that, and that's necessary and good, but it requires a little more on our part. It means connection with him, which is what the spiritual life hopes to do. So uh, my next lecture, we'll pick it up from there.